Welcome to the podcast series about our textbook, Indigenous Education in Australia, Learning and Teaching for Deadly Futures, published by Routledge. This podcast series is hosted by Marnie Shea and Rhonda Oliver. We are the editors of this book, which is a collection of chapters authored by Indigenous and non-Indigenous educators and researchers on a variety of topics on Indigenous education. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that this podcast is recorded on and the lands of the peoples where listeners are tuning in from today. In this podcast series, we explore the chapters with authors, providing listeners and readers of the text the opportunity to hear authors yarn about their chapters and provide further insights about some of the suggested practice implications on their topics. It's Marnie here, and today I'm yarning with Professors Grace Sara and Annette Woods, who co-authored the chapter with me, Strong Identities, Strong Futures, Indigenous Identities and Wellbeing in Schools. Welcome and thank you so much to you both for sharing your time and knowledge with us today for this podcast series. Can you please introduce yourself to the audience, who you are, who's your mob, where you're from? Thanks, Marnie. So my name's Grace Sara. And um, I'm quite fortunate in that I'm both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. On my mother's side, I'm Aboriginal from the Buri Gubba Nation, Bindal, and Torres Strait Islander from the um, Eastern and Central Islands with my dad um, from a, a small island called Moor Island. My background is I was born and lived in Townsville and um, I am trained school teacher, primary school teacher, uh, studied at James Cook Uni and um, I'm now a professor in the education faculty at QUT and uh, my background actually is in Indigenous education. Great and look forward to hearing more about that Grace. Annette. Thanks Marnie um, and nice to see you again Grace. So I spent a good deal of my um, childhood growing up with my mum in the south coast of, of New South Wales so on the lands of the Dura-Waldaga lands and moved at, as I finished um, school moved to Sydney to go to Quarry University and straight after that moved up to Queensland and since then I've been working uh, and and living on on these lands so um, I now work at uh, QUT I'm within the new faculty of creative industries education and social justice and my work is around literacies school reform I work in communities um, of high poverty and look at how schools might create better access for all children thanks Annette and many of you would have heard about me and my background in uh, if you've listened to other podcasts but I'll just quickly acknowledge my people so uh, on mum's side, Aboriginal Wagaman country is our traditional um, connections. But I was born in Brisbane, raised in southeast Queensland and got connections to you know, a few different communities around southeast Queensland where I was born and raised. So I've been very fortunate to work with both professors Sarah and Woods on um, various projects. So I've been very fortunate to have been um, mentored by both um, Grace and Annette and Grace supervising my PhD. So it's been wonderful to keep working um, with you both. Can you please share with the audience your background in Indigenous education? I know you both touched on that. I think the audience would love to hear more about, um, you know, your time teaching. And I know Grace done many, many years of classroom teaching in different communities. So uh, when I graduated from James Cook University back in 1991, I went into a mainstream classroom to teach and it was in primary school. And then after doing a couple of years of that, I became a, a professional development officer 
for North Queensland Education Queensland, uh, where it was looking at professional development work, development work, working with educators and principals in schools within the northern region around how they might incorporate Indigenous studies or embed Indigenous perspectives, working with community, things like that in the area of Indigenous education. So I did that for a few years in the in the region. Ended up at the University of Southern Queensland, where I was an academic in the um, Indigenous unit there, and I coordinated and uh, taught in their Indigenous Studies unit. So I did that for maybe, I think it was like three years. And then what I found was that as an academic within universities is that you're, you know, talking up all this stuff about how to implement and incorporate Indigenous perspectives and working in Indigenous spaces. And I felt the need then to go back into the classroom and put stuff into practice. So then I went to Sherbrooke State School and went back classroom teaching. And then in that time, I was there for almost six years as a classroom teacher and curriculum coordinator and did a lot of work at Sherbrooke State School and then ended up at QUT where I am presently now. Wow, what a journey, Grace. <laughs> and that, what about you? I started my teaching in the Logan area of Brisbane with high numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids um, within our classrooms and completed my uh, teaching career, which was about 13, 14 years uh, in the end around the Ipswich area. So um, also just to the outskirts of, of Brisbane. And I, I guess several advisory jobs and other leadership jobs that I was involved in you know I was quite interested in the fact that particularly children in the early years particularly if they were of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent or from other uh, groups that might be classed as minority groups that you know the opportunities that they were receiving especially in relation to becoming literate were not the same opportunities weren't being opened um, to those kids by schools and schooling uh, so I came into to UQ to do a doctoral work on how children actually come to fail in those early years of schooling and what it is about both schooling and how teachers talk about children and young people and you know the programs the opportunities that are offered to those children how that actually frames up those children and particularly you know as families come through how that sort of frames up particular possibilities for some kids um, and other opportunities for other kids. So um, that was kind of the, the beginning point of me thinking um, about research. Uh, and since then, I've worked at a number of universities, but now at QUT um, and still engaging in very similar work to that. Hmm. Thanks, Annette. And I'll just briefly uh, talk about my, my background in Indigenous education. So I'll probably start with my undergrads. I went straight from school to do an undergraduate degree. I did a, a whole bachelor degree of Indigenous studies. How lucky was that? It was uh, back in the 90s, the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was a, a lot of energy around that time around developing Indigenous courses. And I had the really unique experience of having mostly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lecturers, which really was a, a wonderful thing for me. And that's when I got really um, confident with, with studying. And so you know, I, I worked in education after that. My, my very first job was actually out of university. It was at QUT in the Ujuru unit. And I was working on a project that was supporting Supporting undergraduate students with placements that were to do with their study areas through the National Indigenous Cadetship Project and from there I, I did lots of different roles always around education in some way some in support roles and I went back to retrain as a teacher so then I worked as a teacher in different school settings mostly flexi schools and did some more study as well and um, have ended up being an academic in education and and do a lot of work in Indigenous education which I love uh, so in our chapter 
chapter, we explored identity and, and well-being. So I'm wondering if we can just yarn to some of those uh, key thoughts and um, ideas that we presented in the chapter. A lot of the work came from a project that we did together that explored and really centred the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in thinking about identity, well-being and schooling. And we were able to share some of that work in this chapter. Grace, do you want to talk to us a, a bit about the project and some of the ideas and key themes that we talked to in the chapter? Yes, Marnie. The project was around cultural identities, health and well-being, and it was a, pro- a three-year project, and we worked across six different diverse school settings. Uh, so there was regional school setting, metropolitan, and Indigenous community school settings. Um, and part of the project was also around um, uh, working with the Indigenous communities within those particular school settings. And uh, it was really important that we worked with the communities from the beginning in exploring what it might look like, how we might engage the students and schools and principals and everything. So everything from the onset. We also employed local uh, research assistants within from those communities, a male and female as well. And they were also research assistants within our project in terms of working with the Indigenous young people when we weren't available uh, to work with them around different areas like workshops and things like that. So within the project, we also had a um, Annie Denise as well, who is an elder, and but she also worked with us as a senior research assistant on the project and shared her knowledges, experiences, and expertise in the creative arts area, but also growing up on our Aboriginal community as well. And I know when we started the project, we uh, really felt like this work was so important because of all of the deficit ideas that remain about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people, their identities, and similarly our identities as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And what we wanted to do was really give young people a space to be able to talk to their experiences and what their realities are in light of all of the deficit conversations that continue to happen in education. And so in creating the space, we did come up with a number of workshops. Grace, do you want to talk to some of those workshops that we did in schools? and they were a little bit different across some sites hey in response to local yeah so in terms of the workshops we did um, and the workshops were aimed at the different school settings and the diverse communities within them and what we did was that when we worked with the uh, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in these schools is that we didn't assume that they knew who they were, where they were from in terms of, you know, history, how that has impacted on, on where they are today. And um, and doing that, because what we found is that we had young Indigenous people coming along to the workshops who were struggling with their identity or were struggling with identifying as an Aboriginal person. And I could say sitting on the fence, but an actual fact, they were part of the stolen generation. So the intergenerational effects of of colonisation and how that's played out with young Indigenous people in our schools today. So what we did was we we did workshops around looking at uh, history of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. And in doing the workshops around history, it wasn't just us talking. At some of the sites we uh, visited, for example, a ration shed, which is shares the history of a particular community. And we had invited elders and traditional owners in to actually run the workshops. In other communities, we actually invited elders and TOs into those spaces to share their history. So just because we were Indigenous didn't mean that 
you know, we, we knew all the knowledge from those particular communities. And it was the importance of making sure that we were engaging with community in those particular spaces. And we had done that throughout the whole course of the project. And in looking at stuff around uh, colonial histories and then uh, having discussions and workshops with the young people in terms of how that might have, you know, how that's affecting them now, discussion and discourse came up around issues around racism and discrimination and how, you know, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people are portrayed um, today in the media. And usually it's always negative stereotypes, very would they see positive stereotypes unless it was in football or sports or things like that Mm. Um, and I remember that theme coming up in so many different sites that we went to yes regional areas urban areas that theme of the pervasiveness of stereotypes particularly in the media came up and that you um, led a section in the chapter around media representations and and language and and what that means when we represent these ideas in classrooms whether deliberately or unintentionally. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, certainly. And um, part of the reason I think um, that we decided to put that section into the chapter was because it was a really resilient theme that came up as young people were talking to us. And and I know that the basis of what we were thinking when we were designing how this project would run was that we were all really invested in the fact that we, we didn't want this to be um, orientated towards a deficit where we might bring an intervention in or, but we were really interested and listening to the voices of young people and thinking about what their experiences were and what they were actually wanting to to talk about to to schools to adults to elders about what actually makes or what actually provides an opportunity for them to you know feel strong and and feel like um, their identity is being respected so um, in the short section in the chapter where we actually have a look at just one um, media article I guess part of the point was to show that you really don't have to scratch the surface very far um, in order to see those very resilient discourses around um, race and inequality um, and representations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within both traditional and social media texts within Australia, which really, um, you know, ensure or constrain um, the ways that people are able to understand Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, their strength, their resilience, and and what clearly um, they are offering to um, Australian society. So we had a look at just, as I said, one um, example of a um, media article, which was actually around um, sport. When I was looking for for the article that we would, would do this analysis on, I specifically looked to sport because um, the young people had talked a lot about how they did have role mo- models in sport and yet when we go to look at the traditional print media in Australia, we see that even in those areas where um, you know we have role models who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, peoples, the traditional media is going out of its way almost to ensure that the, um, the representations pr- portrayed about those brilliant sports people are going to have negative connotations as well. So, you know, drawing on discourses of of even just physical descriptions um, of people um, being large and powerful, you know, instilling fear in in those who might be reading that this is something that we should be, you know, fearful of um, and really limiting uh, the both, you know, of non-Indigenous readers of this print, but also, of course, of young people who are looking, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people who are looking to see our models, uh, looking to see, you know, their, their brilliant stars in, in, you know, who are doing well across the board um, and consistently also seeing, you know, these 
put-downs, these very uh, insidious ways of actually using language to ensure that only some representations are, are given, are put to the foreground and not others. And I know there's a lot of um, work that puts forward that social media, you know, actually provides a space where there can be some resistance to these representations and some kind of form of dissent. But in the end, you know, the algorithms are actually deciding what it is we will see because of what we might have liked or, or um, you know, stopped for a moment to read on. So, you know, even um, within social media, which you know, probably in its early days showed some promise to provide an opportunity for different publications, for different voices um, to come to the surface, you know, even within those spaces, certainly we're seeing that they're being, you know, the, the representations that were are available are being curated um, and certainly not to the advantage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within Australia. So I guess that was our point of, of wanting to do that, that small analysis within the chapter. Yeah, and I think it was an important part of demonstrating to teachers the power of what is essentially institutionalised racism mm -hmm. via the media. And certainly within schools, that still surfaced for us when we were listening to young people about their experiences and navigating lots of different schooling sure. systems. And what was really striking, I think, to all of us, we'd all agree in the data, is that although there were young people that were still exploring their identity and perhaps learning about their countries, their language groups, their totems and things like that, like that. What was most striking was that in the face of all that deficit discourse, as you said, and, and the systemic racism that is really persistent, that young people see their identities as, as a strength. And, you know, we put some voices of young people in the chapter really deliberately. And some of those voices included when they were asked to articulate their identity as understanding where you come from, of representing who you are, how you see yourself, of being different. And being different didn't always mean a negative thing. In some, in some contexts, it meant it was a good thing. Um, about not choosing your identity, about your skin colour. There was a pride in skin colour and, and bloodline connection. Staying true to your culture, respect for elders and family came up across lots of different sites. That's interesting though, Marnie, isn't it? Because again, if we go back to um, when we were first talking about how we might design this project um, that we report on in this chapter, we were really, um, all of us, very, very interested in making sure that we weren't researchers coming from the outside or educators coming from the outside and bringing an intervention that was going to work with um, young people around their understandings of identity and also around well-being. We wanted very much to ensure that we were listening to young people and listening to the positives, the strengths, um, what they were able to draw on. And I think that's, um, as Grace was talking about the workshops, I think, you know, that was the basis of why that was our approach, that we really wanted to open up spaces for young people to talk, to talk about, you know, what was great in um, in their relationships and their communities um, and how strong they felt within themselves, regardless of what um, some of the systemic racism that they were clearly dealing with, talking to us about over and over again. Mm. I, I think an important factor in the work that we did was that our work was strength-based. So we looked at the strengths of not only the individuals that we were working with, but the strengths of their particular communities and where they were coming from as well. So looking at the strengths of the students and the communities, because too often in schools, it is always looking at deficits. Uh, so when teachers are, are teaching or principals are working on curriculum and programs, it's always about fixing the problem. And Indigenous uh, students or Indigenous young people are always seen as, you know, we need to fix them. And it's not about fixing them. It was about how we could work together. Because in terms of the topic around identity and well-being, it wasn't about us going in and saying, you know, 
this is your identity. They have their own identity and there's different identities, not just cultural identities. And then it was about exploring those identities in a little bit more detail. And it was through different forms of creative outputs, uh, which they then, at the end of the actual research project, they were able then to share those creative outputs and share what identity looked like, felt like, meant like uh, to each of them. Mm, Absolutely. And we did have a section in the chapter where we wanted to put some applied tips for teachers around what we learned from young people and their families and communities. And you talked very strongly there around the strengths-based approaches. But we also talk in the chapter about high expectations, relationships as well, Grace. They're pretty interconnected, aren't they? Yeah. So I think um, in the chapter, we looked at high expectation relationships, but also about acknowledging and embracing identity. So acknowledging and embracing Aboriginal identity and Torres Strait Islander identity, but also Uh, acknowledging and embracing other identities that exist across our schools and in terms of high expectations and working and as an educator working within the school is that having high expectations of the young Indigenous students that you have sitting in front of you because sometimes in our schools teachers have low expectations of the students and you know the self-fulfilling prophecy if your teacher has a low expectation of you then you're only going to work to what they expect that you can achieve achieve and from my own personal experience if I can share that is that going through high school is that in my last year of schooling you know I was with uh, an English teacher that I remember quite well is that I wasn't going to mount too much and you know asking for a referee's report and it was like oh no I don't give them out yet she was I had given them out to two non-Indigenous colleagues of mine I think that experience back then I think still continues today for some of our young Indigenous people sitting in classrooms today, that low expectations of the students that they have in front of them. And that that could have set me up to fail or it it, in, in my circumstances, I had a very strong upbringing from my mum, my dad. I come from a very large extended family, very aware of who I am in, in terms of my cultural upbringing, but also aware that this just wasn't right, what was going on. And I, I, I make a point that for my own children, when I see that occurring, which it does, is that I actually um, confront the school and the educators that are doing that. And I think those personal stories are really powerful and and thanks for sharing that, Grace. It's one thing to have research data and um, and literature on it, but it's another thing to to hear someone's story. And I think, you know, we talk about strengths-based approaches in the book as stories encouraging the reimagining of different futures. And I think we all agree, and I, I know that's the reason we continue to do the work that we do, because we do want change and we don't want to hear more stories of Indigenous young people going through school today and having that experience. And although it may not have appeared really clearly in our data, Grace, I think you and I would both agree, spending a lot of time in the communities, that we were hearing really similar stories actually across most of the sites I can remember. So I think there's another element to that too, Grace, and particularly um, as you know, we were trying to work out what we would do within this project and, and the important principles that we wanted to put forward. So not only for teachers to think about how important it is to actually have a strength-based approach, but also to have high expectations, but also to listen to young people. Um, and so as we designed the project, we were really you know, recognising that these young people are experts in their own lives and having opportunities to not only talk about their experiences 
experiences, but also to provide advice and to have ideas and imaginings about how things might be different. So one of the workshops that we um, engaged in was to actually ask young people to draw um, a school that actually would provide them with a space that would be, you know, great for the development of their strong identities and also for their own well-beings. And, you know, interestingly, the young people, of course, had amazing ideas, amazing imaginings about what school could be um, and what would actually support them in their, you know, as they grew through adolescence and into really strong adults. So, you know, that would be something else that I would say to teachers, I think, is that listening to young people and understanding that um, young people actually do understand their lives and do, you know, imagine um, what their lives could and, and should be. So that would be, you know, another piece of advice, I think, for teachers who are engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and indeed all young people within their classrooms. Yeah, thanks, Annette. And and the final, I guess, antidote to a lot of what we've talked about is the power of embedding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives and knowledges across the curriculum and what that can do to counter some of the issues that we've raised here. So that's another tip that we put in the chapter about supporting and affirming the identities of Indigenous young people. Just finally, uh, you know, in reimagining a better future for Indigenous education, I'd like to ask both of you what your visions are for excellence in Indigenous education. I think my vision for excellence in Indigenous education is that I don't think, you know, doing a teaching degree and embedding Indigenous perspectives at that level is actually enough. I think my vision would be that our teachers, principals, cleaners, groundsmen, people that engage or work with or have contact with not only Indigenous students but non-Indigenous students as well are aware of, you know, the good things around Aboriginal culture and Torres Strait Islander culture. And I'm not just talking about history stuff. I'm talking about present day stuff because we have pop culture and we have all of that sort of stuff. So celebrating what Indigenous people have in Australia but also recognising the atrocities and sad events that have also occurred. And I think if we can do that, I think it, it could possibly break down so some of the social justice barriers um, that we have. Thanks, Grace. Uh, yeah, so big question, Rani. Um, but I guess as a non-Indigenous person, um, I guess what I would imagine or what I would hope for in terms of our education systems is that we might get to a point where uh, non-Indigenous educators, policy workers, curriculum writers, uh, and, and even you know parents um, and other community around schools can approach engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples with a little bit of self-awareness and understand the richness that we might um, be able to engage with if we're open to that opportunity uh, and also see that you know every instance within a classroom for example if you're a teacher is actually a learning space and it's not just for us to sit with just a narrow um, framing of how things work and how the people you know within um, within our spheres engage that we might actually um, be a little bit open to the positives that can come from you know a world where everybody gets the opportunity to do you know to the best of of their potentials what they're imagining their lives should be and that that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you know some groups are losing out 
because we're actually being respectful and reciprocal and um, there's a more general benefit um, across society. So I guess that's what I would hope for in our schools, that we'd actually have a safe space where, you know, all children and young people are able to uh, express themselves, to get what they need, to have strong, healthy lives um, and that those in charge, teachers, educators, um, other family members, etc., who are making decisions within schools are actually open to understanding the positives of that. I think it also comes back to, I mean, although we're saying educators and teachers and within schools, I mean, we need to actually look further up the ladder mm, in terms sure. of our politicians. Mm. And, you know, a prime example is that if we want change to occur, there needs to be some change in the mindsets of the politicians that we have. Mm. And example is with, you know, Australia Day and the Australia Day celebrations, mm. or is it Survival Day for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people? Mm. But having a platform and an open space to actually have those discussions. Yeah, I agree. I think that excellence in Indigenous education, it's not um, sitting within vacuum. But I think what I'd like to say, and I get to, I get to talk about this in, in another podcast, so what I'd like to say in light of this podcast recording is happening just days after a report was handed down to a major AFL club, Collingwood Magpies, which they commissioned, I'd like to point out as well, and the response to it has been absolutely woeful from the club. And I think where we could keep having these conversations in education and in health, um, I've grown up hearing them from my family about the injustices around um, police and harassment of police, a whole range of different things. But we, we can't really talk about excellence until we address the, the one major issue, and, and that is racism, both individual and systemic. And so I think that is a really good start. I think in education, we really haven't started talking about racism very much. And I think as a nation, we probably need to. Yeah, I'd certainly agree. And I agree with you as well, um, Grace, that, you know, we need some strong leadership here as well. Um, but as individuals, we also, you know, carry a responsibility to do what we can and to actually, um, you know, work in, in the ways that we're expecting our leadership to. Um, as individuals, you know, this, we still have a, a part to play. We certainly need systemic change. Um, there's no doubt about that. And that's you know, either within a school or within a system or within a sports club, um, but also much more broadly um, within Australia. Um, but we, as each of each of us as well, have a place to actually, and it's something that we need to be doing in terms of, of being open to creating a better society for, you know, the kids that we're leaving behind, I guess. Yeah, and if we're not going to get political leadership on it, then you know, it's really not that hard to learn more about racism and colonial histories. And I guess I'd like to just end by saying that racism is not a debate we're not having a debate. It's a real issue. The research is there. We had um, Professor Bodkin Andrews did an amazing chapter with the Durable, um Elders and Traditional Descendants Group showing the evidence about the harms that it causes. And it certainly came up across all aspects of our chapter. And while some of the tips that we put in the book um, coming from the data that we got from young people and our own experiences as scholars in, in this field, there's still a lot more to do. Any final comments from either of you? No, I think we no, covered I think it. That's Thank you. Great. So thank okay. you. I'd like thank to thank you, you both for your generosity and sharing your time with us today.